words spoken by your spirit to your apostles and prophets for the church in all ages. Help us to hear his voice through the voice of James. Help us to know you better. And in knowing you better, be transformed into the lights that a world of darkness needs to see. May you be glorified in all we do and say this morning, as you already have been in what has come before, may you be glorified in what comes next. We pray all of this by our, the precious Holy Spirit through the name of Jesus, our Savior, to you, God, our Father. Amen. I invite you to turn to the book of James, chapter 2. We've been, we've been looking at James from a, a little bit of a different point of view. Uh, those of you that are, have been in church for a while, you've studied James. It's probably been, um, James is a very practical book, and it is. Um, but how James is talking to the church um, and how he is addressing issues in the church um, and addressing a conversation in the church about what does it mean uh, to be followers of Jesus. And James is Jesus' half-brother. He, he would have grown up in a home with Jesus, um, the, the biological son of Mary and Joseph. And he's kind of, he's not the next oldest. He's in the mix. And um, he would have been known as Yaakov or Jacob. Um, James is the English version of Jacob because English makes no sense. And um, he is... Uh, he basically grows up really not liking Jesus, as near as we can tell. Uh, he rejects Jesus as the Messiah. But then at some point after the resurrection, James comes to be a follower of Jesus. Um, and, and that's got to be an interesting dynamic, accepting that your older half-brother is the Messiah and the Son of God. And James becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And then uh, the church is scattered due to the persecutions, particularly the persecutions of the Jewish authorities. The ruling Jewish elite is very uncomfortable with the, the Christians. And they, they never really get comfortable with the Christians. Toward the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, they will institute what is called the 19th Blessing. And the 19th blessing, uh, the, under rabbinical Judaism, you pray 18 blessings over the people of Israel. The 19th blessing is a curse on the Nazarenes, on the Christians. And so there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the church at this point. Because they're not entirely sure who they are. Most of the believers in, in Judea and Jerusalem, Samaria, most of them are are Jews who have come to accept Jesus as their Savior and their, their Messiah. And that's who James is dealing with. But then there's also some Gentiles who are being involved. And, and as near as we can tell, they're still going to the temple. They're still doing all their things. They're still eating kosher. They're still observing all the, the Torah rules of being Jews. They're still sorting out what it means to be Jewish and be a follower of Jesus. And that process will go all the way through. It'll, it'll go through James and the book of Hebrews and uh, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Paul's letters deal with that issue. Jude deals with that. Um, in fact, the book of Revelation, which is one of the very last books of the Bible, they're still dealing with it. How, how can you be, um, you know, uh, faithful to the Old Testament and faithful to the New Testament? How can you strike that balance? And one of the particular issues that James runs into, he addresses here in James chapter 2. 
we're going to pick up in verse 14. Um, James has been dealing about partiality. He's been dealing about, you know, uh, identifying people by different things. But then in verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. But do you want to be shown, you foolish people, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son, Isaac, on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. Now this is one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. And that's saying something. Because the Bible's got some controversial stuff in it. But this is a, a, an interesting moment where James is trying to get two extremes in the church to understand that the answer is not on either of their edges, but somewhere in the middle. Uh, finding what, what we would call a middle way. He's not asking them to compromise. And that's, that's an important point. I want to make it clear. He's not asking them to compromise. He's not saying, well, you've got some valid points and you've got some valid points. Let's see if we can find somewhere we can meet in the middle. He's saying, you're wrong and you're wrong. The answer is in the middle. All right? There's a difference between those two things. And there are times to compromise and there are times to just say, no, you're wrong and you're wrong. The answer's somewhere else. And that's what James is doing. So let's first, before we get into too much of it, let's take a moment and talk about these two words, faith and works. Because I think if we don't define our terms, we may, I may be talking about one thing and you may be thinking about another thing. So let's talk about faith. Faith is believing. It's the act of believing God's word. That's really what faith is. Faith is the act of believing God's word. It's not just the act of believing anything in James's sense. And I'm talking strictly from James's point of view. We're not talking about just believing anything. You can believe all you want that the Boston Bruins are going to win the Stanley Cup this year. It's not going to happen. They got knocked out rounds ago. And how bizarre is it that July starts this week and the NHL playoffs are still going on? Because nothing says hockey like July. Anyway, so uh, we got this going on. So faith is believing the word of God. It is the, the sense that the message is true. Faith is about the message, about the gospel. It's about believing this message. Faith, believe, 
Um, and, and in Greek, we, we have this weird thing. Greek has a word that can mean faith, the noun, and believe, the verb. Right? It's the same word. But in English, we don't have that because, again, English makes no sense. So we have, we have faith and we have believe, but believe and faith are the same thing. It's, it's putting my trust in the word of God. That what the scriptures say is true. What is preached from the word of God is true. That's faith. Believing that Jesus is the savior of the world. And so uh, I need to come to him and repent of my sins to receive forgiveness. It's true. Putting faith in that. That's one of the reasons why we consider baptism uh, the first act of obedience as a believer. Um, and, and when somebody says, well, I believe, but, but they're, they're not willing to publicly profess that. Well, that, that, that's not really believing something. If you believe it, but you don't want anybody to know about it, you know, what, what belief is that? Now, what about works? Well, as James defines this word works, and, and the word works uh, in English, the Greek word is the word that we get the word energy from. And energy is the ability to do work in physics. That's the definition of energy. So every time a kid says, I have so much energy, that means they have the ability to do work. All right. Um, so, uh, oh, my son is energetic. Well, my house needs a roof. I would not recommend that procedure process. I'm pretty sure your homeowner's insurance would not approve of children climbing around putting a roof on. Although I did put a roof on at 10, but let's not get into that. Not by myself. Not like I was doing it on my own. There were some other 10-year-olds. And my dad and their parents. It wasn't like we were there by ourselves. Anyway, um, so... What is work? Well, work in James's terms, just within James, all right? And it's important you understand the biblical authors, they often use words in slightly different ways. Um, James is using the word works. He's describing the idea of caring for others, meeting other people's needs, and controlling yourself for the sake of others. It's the outward manifestation of a belief in Jesus as Savior. He says that this is the mission so if faith is about the message, works is about the mission. It's about doing something because of what you believe. And, and on one side of the church that James is dealing with, there are a group of people that say, I believe, and that's all you need to know. Doesn't matter anything else that happens. You know, it's like, um, uh, I, I was watching a TV show this week and, and, the people in the TV show were just absolutely just debauched. I mean, drunken idiots who were not, not it, that's an accurate description of them. Um, I mean, they were just doing really, really stupid things on TV, you know, on, on this show. And then they go to have dinner and they're drinking and they're insulting each other. They're cussing and swearing. And then one guy starts talking about Jesus blessing the bread. And I'm like, buddy, there's, there's an issue here. Like you're gonna you're gonna bless the bread in the midst of your drunken. There, there's something there's there's a disconnect. And and there, the idea is there was this group over here. They said, well, I have faith, so you know it doesn't matter. You don't need to worry about works and things. And we know that this is happening in James, in the church that James is addressing. There are rich people walking past poor people to get to their special seats in church. To sit there and show everybody how faithful they are. 
You know, now, if you've ever been to an old, uh, you've been to an old colonial church, one of the, the, it's, it's funny, right? So, in New England, right, what is in town center of every town in New England older than about 1750? It's a church, a white church, which is funny because the people that actually, when those churches were built, they were not painted white. They were just left natural wood because Puritans believed that paint was vanity. So those how those buildings were actually originally just the natural wood. And then somebody realized that if you leave natural wood in New England weather, it becomes natural rot. And they painted them white. Anyway, you go to those churches, some of those old churches, you go to Old North Church or one of those really old churches, and you will see these pews, right, that have gates on them. You know, in fact, some of the really nice ones, they're like like opera, like elevated balconies for the rich people to go to church, right? Um, and uh, and so there, there was this sense, this is nothing new. In this church, these rich people are stepping over the poor people at the door to get to their seat so they could sit down and tell everybody how, I have faith. I have faith. Then on the other side, there are, you know, these people who are, it's, it's all about what you do, man. It's all about what you do. Don't worry about the details. Don't talk about darkness. It's just all what we do, man. I'm, 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 and, and they're coming to church and they're, they're saying, this is what we did. And this is how we did it. And this is how fast we did it. And this is how many people we got involved in. And work, 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 work. And so on this, we have kind of this spectrum between kind of the, the kind of the extreme faith and kind of the activist. It, it's all about works. It's all about what I do. And I think in the modern church, there's no difference. I mean, I've been to churches where they spent so much time talking about how wonderfully perfect their belief system was. That, I mean, I, 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 they might have talked about works at one point. I just fell asleep. I fall asleep in those situations. And on the other side, you get churches where all they ever do is talk about all the good things they've done. And Jesus never even gets brought up. There's no talk of doctrine. There's no talk of belief. It's just all about all the good things. There's this wide div- the division. And James says, you guys are both wrong. Because James is a very gentle teacher. He says, look. He says, um, what good is it? In verse 14, he says, if you say you have faith, but you do not have works. He says, what does that do? What's that accomplish? Isn't that ultimately just selfish faith? I've got faith. Look at me. I'm faithful. Jesus is so lucky to have me. I'm so faithful. He says, what good is that? He says, can that faith save you? If you can look down at somebody who's poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and not at least do something. He's not saying we have to fix the world's problems to be Christians. He's just saying you should be moved to do Something. So often I think we get paralyzed by the scale of problems. We get cauterized by the scale of problems. They say, well, there's no way we could ever fix that problem. I can't do it. I'm just one of it. So I'm just going to ignore it. We get blown away by the scale of things. And that's one reason that somebody might just make faith about myself. I have faith. Isn't it interesting the way it's phrased? You could say, I have, he has faith. He possesses this thing, but not do anything. And then on the other side in verse 18, right? But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
So on the other side, it's like, well, faith is, I mean, look at those guys. They're terrible. But, you know, I see a poor person. I immediately go to work. Everything I do, it's like, sometimes I miss church because I'm so busy being a Christian. James says, show me faith apart from works, and I will show you faith by my works. Now, everybody gets bound up on that statement. I want to submit to you, and maybe if you've been a Christian for a while, you've, you've worked your way through this passage. But I would submit to you that that is not the core statement of what James is saying. The core of what James is saying is right here in verse, uh, whatever verse my bad eyes tell me, 19. You believe that God is one. That is the core verse of James's argument. Now he goes on, he says, um, you know, even you do well, even demons believe and shudder. And a lot of people read that. But I want to propose to you what James is saying when he makes that statement. Because doesn't that statement look a little out of context? He's dealing faith and works. He says, you believe that God is one. Now what is he saying? He's speaking to Jews, the Shema. Behold, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, you believe the Lord is one. Now, James is alluding to something that Jesus said. Something that his, his half-brother Jesus had said is ringing in James's head. When Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment, he was only asked for what is the greatest commandment. Jesus replied to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and mind, and the second is like unto the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, these two things are inseparable. They are as inseparable as God is one. Faith and works are not two separate things. That's James's point. James's point is not, well, you can be saved by doing good things or you can be saved just by believing without doing things. He's, his point is faith and works, they are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. And so, sadly, if you think you only need one, you're lacking. We have a tendency to separate things that God never intended to be separate. To break things into pieces so that they're easier for us to digest, so they're easier for us to pro process, so they're easier even for us to define and to, and to deal with. We have a tendency to take things and say, okay, so this is this part and this is that part, and then before too long, they become two separate pieces. James says, look, here's the core idea. God is one, so your faith and your works are one. The church is one. So he's echoing Jesus' command that uh, the greatest commandment is that to, to love your Lord, the Lord your God. But the second commandment, to love your neighbor, is like unto the first. He's, he's connecting them together. And when we treat them as things that exist independently. Well, I could get my faith sorted before I do good works. I got to make sure I understand all the theological implications of the Abrahamic covenant. I got to make sure I got all this down before I do anything. And on the other hand, if we're all the way over here going, I'll just do a bunch of good stuff and Jesus will think that's cool. 
When we are when we are on those two extremes, we're missing the point that they are meant to be one thing. Faith moves me to work. Work strengthens faith. They're one thing. They're unified. When I was teaching my daughter how to drive, I've been waiting years to make that illustration. I was teaching my daughter how to drive. When we started, and any of you that have taught a child how to drive, um, you know that you have to start with some things that you haven't thought about in a long, long time. Like how hard you're supposed to push the gas pedal. Like where the brake pedal is. Now, thankfully, my daughter lives in a world where sticks, where manual transmissions are exceedingly rare. So I didn't have to teach her clutching. All right. Now, I learned to clutch uh, on a uh, mid-1960s international pickup truck with a shifter down on the ground. One of these. Now, you guys have noticed that I'm slightly vertically impaired. And that, that is all from here down. If I sit next to Eric Wittenberg, we're almost the same height when we're sitting. But when he stands up, you know, his waist is here. I have no legs. I have a 26-inch inseam. I have to have, I have, to have short, short man pants hemmed. All of my shorts come to here. I'm vertically impaired. If you've ever draw, driven one of those old pickup trucks with a bench seat that did not adjust and tried to work the clutch with no legs, I used to have to drive this thing. I was like 14. I was working on a farm. In New Jersey, you can drive on farms without a license at 14. You can't get on the road, but you can drive on the farm. I'm working for this guy named Fred Fuchs. First of all, steering wheel. No hydraulic assistance on a steering wheel. How many of you have driven a vehicle with no hydraulic assistance on the steering wheel? You know what I'm talking about. Steering wheel is this big. I'm 14 years old. The shifter is longer than my legs. So to get from first to second gear, I am driving with my entire body. So to the point that I look like a little old lady driving, you know, like I am, I have to disappear to hit the clutch. It's like, okay, shift a second. <laughs> and I, I'm running, you know, back and forth between these two things, uh, you know, trying to make sure all the shifts and make sure it all didn't grind and all those things. Um, the farmer that I worked on, worked with, by the way, made this up for us by having all the lawnmowers with a hydrostatic transmission, which means there's no shifting whatsoever. And we got into those lawnmower tractor, well, anyway. Um, but when you're learning, when you're teaching that, right, you have to teach the basic pieces, but you do not want your kid driving off by themselves, still driving like this. Okay, checking the mirror, checking the mirror, okay, uh, tachometer, to start to, so, uh, they have to learn to unify all of that work. They have to learn to unify it. And before too long, it becomes second nature to know, okay, I'm going too fast. I need to slow this down. I need to hit the brake. You know, the, the, I mean, the hardest thing, for some reason, the hardest thing of all things to do in driving in New England, for some reason, New Englanders have a real problem with flicking that little switch on the left side of the steering wheel that makes those lights blink. Oh, my goodness. Drives me crazy. You know, and I told my daughter, I was like, this is how far away from an intersection you turn your blinker on. This is when you turn your blinker I'm one of those people, by the way. I turn my blinker on before I change lanes. I don't know if everybody else in this room does this. All right. I turn my blinker on and I check the lane to make sure there's nobody there before I cross over. How many times I'm driving down the highway, somebody pulls in the lane in front of me and then turns their blinker on? I already know. Uh, you know, it's like this is this is the reality. Well, you got to learn to do all of those things automatically. I call it driver zen. 
you enter a mode where you are just doing all these things. If you actually think about what you do on an average day driving a car, there are a, a lot of things going on that you're handling. There are, there are other human beings hurtling the other direction, not paying attention in 2,000 pounds of metal and steel, and, and you're managing all that stuff, there's a lot going on. When you first start, yeah, you got to segment it out. you got to break it out. you got to go, this is the accelerator, this is the thing. That, but eventually, it all has to become one thing called driving. And faith and works, just like God is one, are one thing. It's not about accomplishing Every good work in the world. It's not about Torah obedience. This is where the church was blowing it. They, they were still kind of wandering into Judaism saying, here's the list of things we do to please God. We're going to make sure we do this list of things to please God. And James's argument is faith grows into good works. Good works transform faith. And eventually they become one thing. James believes in what I call an active relational faith. It is a faith that is vibrant, it is moving, it is alive. Because of my relationship with God, I have relationships with other people. People at my level, people below my level, people above my level, people in front of and behind. We are connected with them. And even though sometimes we can't, our works can't answer all of their problems, we are sensitive to what God is doing in their lives. He uses two illustrations. He uses Abraham and Rahab. And I just, I always want to have a conversation with these guys about why they choose the illustrations they choose. I get Abraham, okay? If you don't know the story, God says to Abraham, all right, you know, I promised you a son. And Abraham goes, yeah, you promised me a son. Got a great son. His name is Isaac. We named him Laughter. It's so funny. Isn't it funny? Our son's name is Laughter. It's so funny. Jesus, God, thank you so much for giving us a son. And then God says, okay, I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham goes, not so sure about that, but uh, there's other, and okay. He takes his son up to a mountain. He ties his son to the, to the altar. The son is a little confused because if you do the math right, Isaac's like in his 30s. So this is a weird situation. It's like, Dad, I'm not sure where you're going with this. Well, the extraordinary thing is that Abraham at 140 could still overpower Isaac and tie him to an altar. Anyway, he's got him on the altar, and Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son. I won't get into all the... The, the polemics that are going on here, the, the relationship of the ancient Near East and child sacrifice. And then at the last moment, God stops him. There's a ram caught in the thicket. Abraham offers that. And, and his belief, uh, his works are justified. James interprets it as God believe, Abraham believed and it was counted him as righteousness. You see, verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works. In other words, his faith and his works were together so that when God who was faithful, called Abraham to be faithful and do something that Abraham didn't really understand. The writer of Hebrews says that Abraham believed so strongly in God that he believed that if God moved him, this is in Hebrews 11, if God actually caused Abraham to kill Isaac, that God would have raised Isaac from the dead because God had promised that Isaac would be the seed of the future. Abraham believed so thoroughly what God was doing that he was willing to act on that faith in the most ludicrous way imaginable. Thankfully, God doesn't call us to do that. Abraham was a special case, right? I'm sure that he would agree he doesn't want everybody to go through this. And he says, so see how this works? There's faith and there's works. They're together. 
If Abraham had not had faith in God, would he have been able to go to the works? If Abraham was only dependent on works, would he have been able to act in faith? They come together. And then he talks about Rahab, a little bit more obscure, from the book of Joshua. Um, the people of Israel send in some scouts. It's usually translated as spies, which to me always evokes like James Bond. I picture like these guys sneaking into you know, Jericho. Dun, 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 dun. All right, but not really. They're scouting out the land, and they're in Jericho. And the, the, for some reason, the king's men, they're chasing him. And Rahab, this, this harlot, this prostitute who lives on the wall of, of Jericho, she sees them, she hides them on a roof, hides them in her house, and then eventually smuggles them out. And the reason that she does it, she tells them, I know that God has given you, you Israel, this land. So she acts on faith. She does something ridiculous because she believes in a God she doesn't really understand. She doesn't really know who he is. She just knows that this God has blessed Israel and they're coming and she wants to be um, in the right relationship. And as a result, her family is spared. And you have to ask questions about this. Would Abraham have understood his faith as deeply if God had not pushed him to do what God pushed him to do? Would Rahab, would Rahab, um, did, would Rahab have believed had she not taken the action she took? Or did those actions strengthen Rahab's belief? Did it transform it? Were there moments in the life of Abraham and Rahab where they were confronted with a situation and it was not a question of do I believe enough to do this thing or do I do this thing so that I can believe. It was simply here it is, this thing, this belief, this fork, faith and works together. Can we call that works? No, that won't work. That will never sell. Oh, that'd be a great, or, or we could call it, we could call it waif. That also won't work. Um, but anyway, this, this kind of messy, wobbly ball of faith and works together, it's, it's this, this, um, this synergy of things happening. But all of it boils down to the nature of God. You say, you say I am not a works person. I don't do works stuff. Right? I'm more of a classroom Christian. And I, I can empathize with you. I can identify with you. I'd much rather be sitting in a quiet place. I mean, we've joked around about this, but COVID and not being able to go into hospitals was like the greatest year in the world for me. But the, but the fact of the matter is, I have to go. There's works to be done. I don't like stinky, smelly situations. Um, I know this sounds really bizarre, but I mean, some people stink doesn't bother them. Most of them are, you know, I just don't like smelly situations. When you sit down next to a homeless person in Manchester, which is something I used to do when I lived in Manchester, I used to ride my bike around Manchester and, and my condition with, uh, I would like encounter somebody like panhandling or something. I would, I would have them sit down with me. I would sit and talk with them, and then I would buy them a meal. That was kind of my, my shtick. Um, I, just was, I didn't want to give them money, and I love stories, but man, some of them smelled. 
I mean, it, we were outside. And, you know, it was bad. And, and we don't like to be uncomfortable, but does faith take us into uncomfortable places to accomplish extraordinary things? And we call those works. So where are we going with this? If you believe that God is one, then you have no excuse not to have an active relational faith. There is no excuse for a faith that isn't doing anything beyond the borders of you. Now, the works will look different. Not everybody's works will look the same. Some of you, the the work that God moves you to do will be evangelistic. You're one of those people. Share the gospel with everyone. Connect to people. Hand out brochures. Uh, uh, Carl is a part of the Gideons. They hand out Bibles at public schools. They make sure those Bibles are in the hotels. They they do all of those things. That's a particular kind of work. It's not superior or inferior to any other kind of work. Some of you are caregivers. We've talked about the fact that when I go to a hospital, I stand there with my arms crossed. I pray for people. You know, what's going on? My wife crawls into bed with people that are dying she has a very different gift she will cry and i'm not making this up she will crawl into bed and she will sing songs and i sit there and i go that's amazing when she tells me when she gets home we are very different people everybody's works look a little bit different but you can't have faith without it being active in the relationships you have with other people And your works are worthless without a faith in God. They are intertwined. They are interconnected. They are one thing. You say, well, what do I do? How do I get involved? What works are the best works? Just start somewhere, anywhere, and do something. I have been involved in ministries that I literally counted the days for them to be over. And went, this was not one of the works I should be involved in. And then there have been other things that as a a Christian I have been involved in that have just been the most redeeming, extraordinary, wonderful things. But you have to do something. Faith doesn't sit in a pew. Say, good, we've got chairs. Faith does stuff. It's not necessarily preaching and teaching. It's not necessarily public. But God, when you are serving the one God, your faith becomes manifest in works, action, deeds, care, control, discipline, Our God is faithful and active. So we should have faith and action. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, make our faith ever more active. There are so many little things being done by believers from this church all over our region. Not for acclaim or praise, but simply because you move us, you transform us. And in those relationships we're in, we see the poor, we see the needy, we we serve and minister. 
Help us not to be worried about what we look like to one another, but to be faithful to you. To receive the message and the mission as one thing. And to go out and to be the light that cannot be hidden in our world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you a 